Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Keiji Kimaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Stephen Pfeiffer discussed Putin's war, ramifications and response. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Stephen today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. So good afternoon to everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone here today, as well as those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio, to the 449th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 18, 18, wow, in, <laughs> we've been around a long time, in 1983, which is still a long time, uh, to invite a foreign affairs expert each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks and information about upcoming forum programs are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. If you are interested in keeping informed about key foreign affairs issues and want to become a member of the forum, you will find a membership form on the website. To join us, just apply. We are pleased today to have Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer with us to speak on Putin's war, ramifications and response. Steve Pfeiffer is an affiliate with the Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation, as well as a non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institution. He was a William J. Perry Research Fellow at the Center from 2018 to 2020, and a Fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin from January to May of 2021. Ambassador Pfeiffer's research focuses are on nuclear arms control, Ukraine, Russia, and European security. He's offered commentary on these issues on National Public Radio, the PBS NewsHour, CNN, Fox News, and BBC. His articles have run in the New York Times, Washington Post, National Interest, Moscow Times, and Kyiv Post, as well as other publications. He's the author of The Eagles and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, published by the Brookings Institution Press in 2017, and co-author of The Opportunity, Next Steps in Reducing Nuclear Arms, also published by Brookings Institute Press, this time in 2012. Ambassador Piper is a retired Foreign Service officer. He spent more than 25 years with the State Department, focused on U.S. relations with the former Soviet Union and Europe, as well as arms control and security issues. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. In addition to Ukraine, he served in the embassies, or at the embassies in Warsaw, Moscow, and London, and served on the U.S. delegation to the negotiations on intermediate-range nuclear forces in, in uh, Geneva. He has also been a visiting scholar at Stanford Institute for International Studies and a resident scholar at the Brookings Institution. Quite a resume. Steve, welcome to the Midcoast Forum. 
Well, George, thank you for the introduction. Uh, apologies to everybody that this is about five weeks later than we had originally planned. Um, looking out over the next several decades, China is the big strategic challenge facing the United States. But there's only one country today that could destroy the United States in a matter of hours. That's Russia. And it's Russia that's launched the largest, deadliest war that Europe has seen since World War II ended in 1945. So I'm going to talk about several things. First of all, you know, what do Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin want? I'll talk a bit about the course of the war, American policy, and then I'll talk about some longer-term ramifications and implications of the war. So let me begin with what do Putin and the Kremlin want? And I'll begin by saying the Kremlin is a pretty opaque institution for Americans. It's not always clear what goes on there. But I can make a couple of observations. One, Vladimir Putin is the most powerful Putin, most powerful person to be in the Kremlin since Joseph Stalin died in 1953. And I don't think it's Putin all by himself. There's, a, there's an inner circle there. But when you look at that inner circle, most of them, like Putin, came out of the security services, out of the KGB and its successors. So they have a similar worldview, a similar outlook. The other thing you can say about this is that there's no institutional check on Putin in that inner circle. And that's a difference. Uh, from 1953 up until the end of the Soviet Union, it had the Politburo, which had real power. It chose the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. That was the most important position. And in 1964, it fired Nikita Khrushchev. There's no such body that's a check on Putin and his group. So when I talk about Putin, the Kremlin inner circle, I'm talking about really that small circle that I think really has the bulk of authority in Moscow today. So what does that group want? Well, the first thing they're very interested in is regime survival, preservation of the regime. That's job number one. Um, and you have in what the Putin has built over the last almost 30 years is referred to as the power vertical, where really all major decisions that affect Russia are taken in that small circle at the top. Now, originally, um, when Putin came to power in 2000 as president, they tried to put a democratic facade on things. They talked about things like managed democracy, sovereign democracy, but an emphasis on democracy. And that has sort of some of the facets of a democracy. There is what the Russians call the systemic opposition. So, for example, in the Russian legislative body, there is the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, a party that is neither liberal nor democratic, but it is opposition. However, on big issues, issues that really matter to the Kremlin, they can expect that party to vote along with United Russia, that's the pro-Putin party, on those big questions. Uh, the real opposition, people like Alexei Navalny, uh, they've been in prison. Uh, he was poisoned by the uh, Russian government two years ago, barely survived, and when he returned to Russia, uh, was arrested. Uh, he will be in jail as long as the regime is there. He is part of the non-systemic opposition. And what you see in the Kremlin working with the Russian legislative branch, the Duma, do over the last 10 years is put in place laws on foreign agents, extremist organizations, uh, and such that really have constrained the space for independent media, for independent non-governmental organizations. And increasingly, when you look at Russia today, internally it looks a lot like the Soviet Union. That's not a good thing. A second thing that uh, this small circle wants is they want a sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space. 
because they see that as a natural aspect of being a great power, and their concept of Russia is that it's a great power. Now, what Moscow wants in that sphere of influence are friendly governments, governments that are open to Russian business and the corruption it might bring, and also that they want governments that will check with Moscow on big geopolitical questions. So if it's a question of a relationship with the European Union, they're going to want to have the member, a country in that sphere of influence check first with Moscow and basically give Moscow a veto right. Now, of all the post-Soviet states, the three Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, probably most in Moscow understand that those three states are no longer in the sphere of influence. They belong to NATO now, they're members of the European Union, but I'm not sure that everybody agrees, and I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin accepts that. A third thing that the uh, Russians want is they say we're in a multipolar world, and Russia deserves a seat at the table. So for example, in the UN Security Council, where Russia offer, often exercises its veto, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, says no big issue can be decided around the world without Russia being there, and being there is important, even on issues where Russia really can't bring anything to the solution. And when you look at Russia, outside the post-Soviet space, it really has limited ability to act and usually when it does act, it tends to be more destructive than constructive. Now, the fourth thing that this group wants is they look at how the European area has changed, the post-Cold War European security architecture. And what they see are the enlargement of NATO, the enlargement of the European Union, and the view in Moscow is that those developments are distinctly inimical to uh, Russian interests so they would like to do a way, find some way to undo that. And I think really all four of these things, uh, the idea that regime preservation, undoing the post-Cold War security developments in Europe, uh, Russia having a seat at the table, and Russia having a sphere of influence, all of those play into what Russia today is doing against Ukraine. Now, the immediate result, roots of this war, I would say, are the invasion that took place in February Go back to 2013. In 2013, Russia had in Ukraine a neutral country. It was in Ukrainian law that Ukraine shall have non-bloc status. And then president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, he wasn't interested in, in having a membership action plan or joining NATO. But what he did want to do was bring Ukraine closer to the European Union. And in 2013, uh, Ukraine had completed with the European Union an association agreement. That would have meant a free trade area, a customs union, and Ukraine adopting a number of its laws and regulations to be consistent with European norms. Now, for years, Russia had said, we don't care what kind of relationship Ukraine has with the European Union. In 2013, they decided that they did care. And they begin to put immense pressure on Yanukovych not to sign the agreement. Uh, they threatened economic sanctions, higher energy prices, and a number of other things. And literally 10 days before he's supposed to sign this, uh, the Ukrainian government says that they're not going to sign the association agreement. That night, the Maidan revolution begins. Uh, thousands of people show up in Maidan Square. That's in the center of Ukraine, of, of Kiev, uh, Ukraine's capital. And the protest begins, and over the next three months, it morphs from a pro-European Union demonstration, and sometimes there are hundreds of thousands of people out there on weekends. But it becomes a broader demonstration against Yanukovych's growing authoritarianism and his epic corruption. 
At the end of February, there's violence. About 100 protesters are shot by security services. Uh, and Yanukovych flees the country. I mean, he just disappears. And Ukraine's parliament basically says, okay, we know what to do when the president dies. We know what to do when he's impeached. We know what to do when he resigns. When he just disappears, we're not sure what to do. And I think what the Ukrainian parliament did, this is the Rada did on February 21st or 22nd, was probably not totally consistent with the Ukrainian constitution, which was politically understandable, is they appointed an acting president and an acting prime minister. An acting president, Turchinov, and acting prime minister, Yatsenuk, say our number one foreign policy priority is to sign the association agreement and bring Ukraine closer to the European Union. Well, what then happens is literally within days, uh, Russia moves to seize Crimea, the peninsula in the Black Sea. Uh, they annex it in mid-March. And in April, uh, Russian security forces begin to provoke what is originally described as a separatist fight, but it's pretty clear it's being directed by Moscow in Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine, such that by the end of 2014, Russian and Russian proxy forces occupy about one-third of Donbass. Now, there were attempts in 2014 and 2015 to try to broker a solution to that conflict in Donbass, um, but they never really took hold. And the conflict simmered, and it was not a frozen conflict. Uh, firing took place across the line on a regular basis. Uh, by the beginning of this year, before the Russian invasion, nearly 14,000 people had died in that eight years of fighting in Donbass. And one and a half million people had left Donbass and are now had become internally displaced persons within Ukraine, and several hundred thousand more had left Donbass or occupied Donbass and gone to Russia. The expectation in the first part of 2021 was this was going to be sort of a steady state for Ukraine, is that the Russians would continue to, uh, to occupy uh, Crimea, and also in Donbass, they would ratchet that conflict up or ratchet it down, depending on what kind of pressure they wanted to put on Kyiv in order to destabilize the Ukrainian government. But then, of course, things changed on February 24, when the Russian army launched a multi-pronged attack into Ukraine. Uh, I would say that there were really three things that drove the Russian decision to invade on February 24. Uh, one goes back to sphere of influence, is that of all the pieces that Ukraine uh, that you know, Russia wanted to have Ukraine as part of its sphere of influence. And what the Kremlin saw in early 2022 was Ukraine moving away from Russia towards the West. Well, well, I would argue that the irony here is that nothing did more to push Ukraine away from Russia and towards the West than Russian policy of the previous eight years, beginning with the seizure of, seizure of Crimea and the fighting in Donbass. A second factor, which I'd argue is probably as important, is politics within Russia. And that is for the Kremlin, a democratic, Western-oriented, economically successful Ukraine is a nightmare. Because that kind of Ukraine is going to cause Russian citizens to ask why they cannot have the same political voice, the same democratic rights that Ukrainians do. And remember, job number one for the Kremlin is regime preservation. The third factor is Vladimir Putin, uh, who has a very distorted view of Ukraine's history and Ukraine's place. And when you look at Ukraine and Russia, these are two countries that have the history that goes back over a thousand years. In the 10th century, uh, the Kievan Rus was one of the most powerful empires in Europe. 
both Russia and Ukraine claim the Kievan Rus as their founding state. So in Russia, they say, Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. And you have two countries, Russia and Ukraine, whose history, culture, language, religion are thoroughly intertwined. From 1654 until 1991, with, a, with the exception of a couple of chaotic years at the end of World War I, what is modern-day, or most of what is modern-day Ukraine, was either part of the Russian Empire or part of the Soviet Union. But it was Ukraine that was one of the constituent parts of the Soviet Union that in the late 80s, in 1990, began pushing for independence. In 1991, a referendum was held in Ukraine asking, do you agree with the decision of by Ukraine's Rada, their, their parliament, to uh, independence? 92% of the population voted yes. And in Crimea, Crimea was the only part of Ukraine where ethnic Russians were a majority. 54% of the population of Crimea voted for independence. Now, for Russia, losing an empire was hard. It was particularly hard to lose, and the hardest piece part to lose was Ukraine. And many Russians are not really reconciled with that. Um, and that includes Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I think the mask fell off a little bit back in June. Uh, Putin was in St. Petersburg. He was meeting with a group of young uh, Russian entrepreneurs. And the question came up about Peter the Great and Peter the Great's um, taking the Baltic states. And Putin says, no, no, no. Peter the Great didn't take the Baltic states from the Swedes. He regained, he returned historic Russian lands. Uh, Putin went on then to describe himself somewhat like Peter the Great. And what he was doing in Ukraine was regaining historic Russian lands. And I think that suggests some insight into Putin. And I mean, he's thinking about legacy. And in Russia, uh, the only way you get the great appended to you, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, tends to be by taking territory. So Putin's a very big factor in this. Now, let me say this is very much a war of choice. Uh, Ukraine posed no security threat to Russia. Uh, if you go back and look at defense spending uh, prior to 2022, Russia typically spent at least 10 times as much on defense per year as Ukraine did. Uh, Ukraine had a much larger military standing force. If you looked just at active duty troops, Russia had four times the uh, manpower strength that Ukraine did. And Russia has about 4,500 nuclear weapons. Ukraine has none. In the early 1990s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine had on its territory what was then the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. Ukraine gave that up, transferred the weapons back to Russia for elimination, and Ukrainians did that in large part because in 1994, actually 28 years ago today, in the Budapest Memorandum, Russia committed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, and its independence, and Russia committed not to use force or threatened to use force against Ukraine. Now, of course, that's now gone out the window. So we're now in month 10 of this war, or, the, or this, this new invasion that was launched by the Russians in February. And uh, I think we can say it's not going as the Russians might have hoped or planned. The first phase uh, involved Russian invasion from the north out of Belarus, from the north and the east out of Russia proper, and then from the south out of occupied Crimea. And those invasion courses suggested to really two Russian goals. One was very quick, quickly to occupy Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, and depose the government. 
but second, to occupy as much as the eastern one-half to two-thirds of Ukraine. And it became fairly clear, clear very quickly that the Russians couldn't do it. Uh, by the end of March, the Russians conceded they could not take Kyiv. The Russians withdrew. They retreated from uh, the northern part of Ukraine. And at the end of March, they said, our focus is now on Donbass in eastern Ukraine. So the second phase of the war really focused on that eastern part, uh, the two uh, Ukrainian regions of Luhansk and Donetsk, which make up Donbass. Uh, after three months of heavy fighting, Russia managed to occupy most of Luhansk. But then the lines really sort of froze. Russia didn't make much progress in moving into Donetsk. And so by the summer, things seemed to be settling down. And then the third phase of the war was really began in the fall in September, where the Ukrainians launched counteroffensives, first of all in uh, Kharkiv region in the northeast, and then in Kherson uh, in, in, in the south. And as you might have seen just about three weeks ago, uh, the Ukrainians liberated Kherson city and pushed the Russians back across the Dnipa River. That was important because Kherson was the only part of Ukraine where there are Russian forces on the west side of the Dnipa River, which roughly bisects the country. Uh, now we're settling down into the winter. There's an expectation on one hand that uh, the pace of fighting will slow down, but there have also been a number of indications out of the Ukrainian side that they have other things in mind. I have to see that. Now, in September, I think you begin to see Putin become a bit desperate about where things were going. Originally, he portrayed this as a special military operation. That's what it had to be called in Ukraine. If you called it a war, uh, you could be accused of discrediting the Russian army, and that could get you up to 15 years in jail. And reporters have been sent to prison for that. Uh, however, in mid-September, uh, Putin recognized that he needed some help. Uh, they ordered a mobilization of 300,000 troops. And uh, they then conducted, in four Ukrainian oblasts, four regions, um, they conducted referendum uh, about joining Russia. Particularly these referenda, which were entirely bogus, came up with 89 to 90% voting to join Russia. And on September 30th, Putin said, we are annexing these, these four regions, even though the Russian military didn't occupy all four of those. Uh, and three days later, when Putin's press spokesperson was asked, what exactly have we annexed? He couldn't tell you where the borderline was. And Russia controls less of those territories today than it did on September 30th. Uh, but this seemed to be a, sort of a desperate move to try to persuade people you know, you can't attack these areas now uh, because they're somehow Russia. Uh, understandably, the Ukrainians ignored that. They continued to press with their counteroffensives. And so you have a situation now where Ukraine has liberated more than 50% of the territory that the Russians had occupied at the height of the Russian invasion uh, in the spring. Now, the Kremlin clearly expected a very quick victory in this war, but it's made a number of miscalculations. The first one was a complete underestimation in the Kremlin of the Ukrainians' commitment to fight. This, quite frankly, astonishes me. I was in Kyiv at the end of January, about three weeks before the invasion, and there was no doubt in my mind that the Ukrainians would fight. You would ask people who are not in the military, what will you do if the Russians invade? We're going to join the territorial defense forces. I'm going to defend my country. That seems to have been a total surprise to the Kremlin and the Russian general staff. Uh, the Ukrainians report, for example, that the soldiers they captured, Russian soldiers that they captured around Kyiv, 
went into battle with only three days of food rations. Uh, and I think what the Russians don't understand is the Ukrainians see this as existential. They lose, that means the end of their democracy, and it means the end of the ambition that many Ukrainians have to become a normal European country. A second miscalculation was to overestimate the uh, capabilities of the Russian military. I think one thing we've learned is that the corruption which is endemic in Russian society, uh, the defense sector was not immune. Uh, there was a report out of Kyiv about two months ago where the Ukrainians had captured a Russian battle tank, a fairly modern one, which had reactive armor on it. Reactive armor is plated around the tank's turret, and it's filled with explosive. And the idea is an incoming shell or rocket hits it, the reactive armor explodes, and the explosion force basically pushes the incoming shell's blast away from the tank to protect the tank. Well, the Ukrainians said, well, we opened up one of these reactive armor plates, and we found it was filled not with explosive, it was filled with rubber, which is a lot cheaper than, uh, uh, than explosives, but it doesn't protect the tank. And so there's probably a significant amount of money that went into this that is now uh, was invested in dodges and other investments. And I think the Russians are finding a lot of the money they put into, and they spent a lot of money the last 15 years to modernize their military, uh, does not deliver the capability that they thought. They also underestimated the strength of the Western reaction. Uh, they thought NATO was divided. In fact, NATO came together very quickly doing things like uh, building a bit military force along its eastern flank to assure allies in the Baltic states and such. And then most NATO members now are providing defensive assistance and weapons to Ukraine. I think Moscow was also surprised by the strength of the Western sanctions. Uh, a couple of in particular. Vladimir Putin uh, built up and, and, and saw large foreign currency reserves in the Russian central bank as basically a rating day fund in case there were ever sanctions. And on February 1st, the Russian central bank had about $630 billion in foreign reserves. Unfortunately for Mr. Putin and the Russian central bank, about half of those were in Western financial institutions. They've all now been frozen and not available to the Russian government. A second thing that they did not expect was the cutoff of high-tech imports. And, and we're finding that a lot of things that the Russians made were very dependent on stuff they imported from the West. And it's led to plant shutdowns. Some of you may have seen in today's New York Times, it's talked about basically auto production in Russia since the war broke out has gone over a cliff. It's down 70%. And that's the impact of not being able to get the imports that the Russians need to assemble cars in Russia. Uh, you've seen this exodus of Western companies, and over a thousand large Western companies have left, and it's companies that were not under sanction. Ikea's not under sanction, McDonald's not under sanction, but they concluded that their re the reputational risk of continuing to do business as usual in Russia was too high, and they've left. And that's had an impact. Uh, the inflation rate is coming down a little bit, but still, at last month, it was 13% in Russia. And the Russian uh, economy is contracting. The uh, figures uh, from the Russian Central Bank expect about a 4% contraction this year. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development predicts the Russian economy will contract 3.9% this year and 5.6% next year. Uh, so there are some real economic uh, difficulties coming to Russia as a result of those sanctions that I don't believe the Russians anticipated. Now, there is one hole in this. It's oil and gas. 
But even today, uh, the European Union and the G7 have now imposed an oil price cap on Russia, which, if it works, I think there's still a question whether it works, but if it does work, it will significantly reduce the revenues that Russia can get from selling oil abroad. So why the miscalculations? I mean, uh, I think there's a number of issues here. One is, I don't believe the Kremlin understands Ukraine. The last time Vladimir Putin was in Kyiv was in uh, the summer of 2013, and he gave a speech and he said, we Russians and Ukrainians are one people. That's an utterly tone-deaf thing to say in Kyiv, because many ethnic Ukrainians shared as, you've denied my culture, my language, my history. Putin continues to repeat that point. I also believe that that closed inner circle that Putin operates in, it's something of an echo chamber. We're not sure what information gets in there, and my guess is there are a lot of people who don't like to give the boss bad news. And that can be a problem. And that inner circle has probably become even more compressed over the course of the last two years because of COVID, where Putin was extremely isolated. So there, on February 21, where he met with his main advisors in this huge room, and his advisors seated 40 feet away from him. And then six or seven days later, he meets with his defense minister and his uh, chief of his general staff. Again, they're 30 feet down the table. This is not an environment that's designed to give the boss the kind of information he needs. And I also think Putin's changed. I, I look at Putin, I think someone there who is probably rational. I, I believe he does look at costs and benefits and tries to make those kinds of calculations. But over the last 15 years, I believe he's become more emotional and angrier, particularly when it comes to Ukraine. And that emotion and that anger clouds his ability to make the kinds of judgments he should be making. So where does this thing go from here? Uh, it comes down a, a lot, depends on two people, Vladimir Putin and the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, ideally, uh, the Kremlin would conclude that this war has been a disaster for Russia, which I believe it has, and look for a way to end it. But at every juncture we've seen so far, Putin seems inclined to double down. So let me give you three scenarios, and let me tell you, the first one I'm going to give you, I think I would take off the table. This is sort of a, a recycled version of three scenarios I would give in, in, in April and May. Uh, the first scenario was that Russia, the military, recovers its footing and Russia wins, and actually takes Kyiv, takes a good part of Ukraine. Based on what we've seen over the last nine months, no military expert I see thinks that that's possible. The Russian military is not capable of that. So I put that scenario out for the sake of completeness, but I just think it's, it's not going to happen. The second scenario is that Ukraine continues its counteroffensive and it wins. It drives the Russian military out, or at least pushes the Russian military back to the lines of February 23. I would very much like to see that happen, but it does raise the question, can the Ukrainians sustain these offensives, which are very... They consume lots of ammunition and equipment, and they wear down people. So the third scenario may be, and this is what the U.S. intelligence community has predicted since the spring, is that at some point this war just settles down into a war of attrition. The lines stabilize, and neither side is able to make a major breakthrough, and the war then goes on for months and months and months. And then the question becomes, at some point, is there exhaustion on both sides, and do you get to a real negotiation? Well, the Russians, that, that kind of negotiation would require that Moscow drop its maximalist demands. 
thus far we've seen no sign of that. In fact, the Russian demands have escalated. You know, as of September, the end of September, Ukraine is asked not only to be neutral, demilitarized, uh, denazified, desatanized. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that last phrase means, but that actually was a term used by the Russian Security Council three weeks ago. Uh, and it has to accept Crimea as part of Russia, but presumably at the end of September, when Russians were losing on the battlefield, they annexed these four regions of Ukraine that Ukraine's expected to recognize that. I don't think that's going to happen. Interestingly, I think that the government of Ukraine, uh, the government of Ukraine back in March was prepared and was seeking a negotiated settlement. They were very clearly ready to accept neutrality. Uh, there were some even hints, I believe, that they were prepared to talk some territorial concessions, uh, but that didn't happen. And after the end of March, Ukrainian attitudes hardened. And the reason is understandable. They saw what happened when they liberated places like Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanka. Uh, they saw the atrocities, the torture chambers, the mass graves, reports of summary executions, filtration camps, young children being removed to Russia and being adopted by Russian families. Uh, they saw the decimation of Mariupol in a three-month siege. And I think that's hardened attitudes both on the part of Zelensky, but it's also hardened attitudes on the part of the Ukrainian Republic. Uh, there was a poll in October where Ukrainians were asked what you should do. 86% said we need to continue fighting and they opposed negotiations. So there's talk now, and some Western pundits say, well, is it time to sort of encourage Ukraine to the negotiations? I think at some point there may be a negotiation, uh, but I think because of the issues involved, that's for the Ukrainians to decide. They, they have to decide if and when to negotiate. So looking forward, I think there's a question here, which is, on one hand, do the economic sanctions, which will inflict greater economic pain on Russia, but more importantly, the steady flow of casualties coming back to Russia, does that erode Russian will to fight before economic difficulties and the lack of weapons and ammunition erode Ukraine's ability to fight? And the United States and the West, we have a say in this because we can keep Ukraine in that fight. Let me offer a couple of comments on the Biden policy towards this. Um, about a month and a half ago, we had reunion weekend at Stanford, and I was asked to talk to some of the alumni, and we were asked to grade uh, the Biden administration on our area. And I, I gave the Biden administration about a B plus, you know, grade inflation maybe an A minus in terms of policy on handling this crisis and this war. They've done the diplomacy very well going back to November and December of last year. Uh, I mean, yes, you saw attention to the presidential phone calls and Secretary Blinken, but there were dozens of meetings, phone calls, and Zooms every day consulting with European allies, allies around the world, what should we do? There was a remarkable amount of intelligence sharing. And what that did was when the Russians finally invaded, you saw a very quick action to impose sanctions on Russia by NATO to begin to strengthen its eastern flank and also by countries to ship arms to Ukraine. Um, now, I think there is one very clear red line that the administration has, and that is that they've said they will not send American troops to fight uh, for Ukraine. And I actually happen to think that that's the right red line. And, and my reasoning is this. Right now, Russia can lose the war, and it's not existential for the Russian state. 
the Ukrainian army is not going to march in Moscow. The Ukrainian army's goal is to drive the Russians out of Ukraine. Now, it may be existential for Mr. Putin's political prospects, but not for the Russian state. Were the United States and NATO with American and NATO troops to enter the war on Ukraine's side, though, I believe in Moscow the perception would change, and it would be seen as existential, that they would see this not as aimed as just driving the Russians out of Ukraine, but as destroying the Russian state. And at that point, I think the war could become very unpredictable and very dangerous. But I do think that what the next steps should be is we should look for ways to continue to tighten the sanctions, particularly on Russian energy exports, and we should also be providing Ukraine the weapons they need to drive the Russians out. And that, to my mind, includes things like Western armor, Leopard tanks, and M1 tanks, which the Ukrainians have shown that they can adapt Western military equipment fairly quickly. I would also argue that we should provide the Ukrainians with uh, what's called ATACMs. It's a longer-range surface-to-surface missile with a range of about 200 miles. And the Ukrainians have already showed that with missiles of a range of 50 miles, they can huge, huge, do huge destruction to Russian logistics and command structures. Uh, and it seems to me that this is probably the way to hasten the war, is to the extent we can help the Ukrainians change the situation on the battlefield, that may bring about an earlier readiness on the part of Russians to negotiate a way out in a serious way. Uh, I also would give the administration credit. I thought they responded to the Russian nuclear threats in September in a very calm and measured way. Uh, and they made the point that, you know, if Russia used two nuclear weapons, there would be serious consequences. And that was communicated both publicly and privately. And I think we need to understand at the end, you know, Vladimir Putin, he doesn't want a nuclear war. <laughs> he wants the West and Ukraine to be intimidated by the threat. And so I think the response was the right one. And it was also helpful that the Chinese and the Indians came out against that. And I think actually the Russians understand that any use of a nuclear weapon, they lose the global south, they lose China, they lose India. And it's a real degree of political uh, isolation. And what's been interesting to me, in fact, I, I wrote an article about a week ago about this, is you actually look over the last six weeks, Russia has de-escalated the nuclear threats. They have de-escalated the nuclear rhetoric. So I would argue going forward, the United States and the West should stick with one broad goal, which is to help the Ukrainians persuade the Russians that they can't win. And ideally, that means that the Russians either withdraw from Ukrainian territory or events on the battlefield are such that Ukraine get to, to a settlement on terms that Kyiv can accept. And I very much hope that the U.S. and the West will continue to push that. Now, let me just talk a couple of points on longer-term ramifications and implications. Um, it's unclear to me exactly how this war ends. But I would say one thing with a fairly significant degree of confidence is, however the war ends, at the end of the day, there's going to be a independent and sovereign Ukrainian state on the map of Europe, and it's going to be a much larger state than the rump state that the Kremlin probably envisaged leaving behind in uh, February of this year. But looking at Ukraine, of course, this war has been a tragedy. There have been tens of thousands of military personnel and civilians killed. The damage is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. I hope at some point the West moves not just to freeze the $300 billion in Russian central bank assets, but to seize them uh, for reparations for Ukraine. Um, but there have also been some other things that have been interesting. One is there is a Ukrainian national identity which began forming in a real way uh, after 2014 and now is really pretty intense. And what 
the Kremlin policy, what the war has done is it's imbued that Ukrainian national identity with a very strong anti-Russian sentiment. Uh, I asked a friend once, a Ukrainian friend, I said, is this anti-Putin or anti-Russian? And the response was, it's anti-Russian because Russians have let Putin do this to us. Um, that's going to take, that enmity is going to take generations or at least decades to overcome. Interestingly though, what the war has done is it's opened up for the Ukrainians the prospect of membership in the European Union. For 30 years, the EU said, we will do, we'll have a relationship with, with Ukraine, but the European Union never told the Ukrainians, if you do all these things, you too can become a member of the European Union. In June of this year, the European Union told the Ukrainians, you can, uh, you can be, uh, aspire to be a member of the Union. I think NATO is going to be a more difficult issue, uh, but we can talk about that maybe in the question and answer session. Uh, for Russia, in terms of ramifications, the war has been a disaster. Significant losses, uh, over 100,000 Russian troops killed or wounded in action. Uh, huge numbers of equipment lost. Uh, the uh, Defense Secretary Austin said it was staggering numbers of equipment. He, it will take the Russian defense budget years and years and years to replace this. Uh, the Russian military reputation is in tatters. Uh, Russia is politically isolated. Uh, in, in last month, you had the G20 summit in Bali. Vladimir Putin didn't go, and I'm pretty sure one of the reasons he didn't go was he would have been stubbed by most of the other participants because of what Russia has done to Ukraine. Uh, I think in the long term, Russia has some real economic concerns to worry about. Being cut off from Western high-tech imports, the technological gap between Russia and the West, between Russia and China, is not going to narrow, it's going to grow. And if the Europeans can successfully wean themselves off of Russian oil and gas, that's going to have big implications for the Russian economy. Uh, about 75 to 80 percent of Russian gas exports by pipeline were oriented towards Europe. And that gas comes out of Yamal up in the northern part of Russia and the western Siberian fields. The problem the Russians have is, you know, they can't swing that gas to Asia because they don't have pipelines that go from Yamal to Asia. Uh, and building those pipelines will be expensive, will take years. So gas, which is by earnings the second most important Russian export, could fall off the map in the next couple of years if Europe can successfully get themselves off of, European, off of Russian gas. One other aspect that's out there is uh, brain drain. As you saw already back in February when the war began, the outflow of people, many in the IT sector, because they could no longer work in Russia, their companies were no longer, they could move to places like Georgia or the Baltic states and work there, but they've left Russia. And when you look at the people who are leaving Russia, they tend to be in that 20 to 35 age demographic. And many of those are never going back. That's going to be a long-term problem for Russia. Uh, finally, I think this has been a game changer for Europe. Uh, in Germany, you have what they call the Zeitenwende, announced by Olaf Scholz. Now, the Germans haven't been as good as they could have been about following up on this. But basically, in two weeks in Germany, you saw a new German government do away with five decades of German policy towards Russia. It moved to impose sanctions that went beyond what many expected Berlin to agree with. Uh, they shut down Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, they 
added an additional 100 billion euros. That's $110 billion to defense. Uh, and uh, they announced that they were buying F-35 aircraft that will sustain for the U German Air Force a, a nuclear delivery uh, capability. You have NATO rearming. Uh, you have NATO putting more forces on its eastern flank. And uh, you have the prospect that in early 2023, uh, Sweden and Finland will be full members of NATO. And that takes the Baltic Sea and makes it basically a NATO lake. Uh, I would look at this war and say, geopolitically, this has been a huge disaster for Russia. Finally, just a couple of comments on the US-Russia relationship. Uh, I hope we'll be able to manage differences on things, at least contain, for example, uh, the competition in nuclear arms. But it's very hard for me to see any possibility of going back towards a more normal US-Russia relationship while Vladimir Putin is in the Kremlin. Now, let me be clear, I am not advocating a policy of regime change. I don't think we're smart enough about the Kremlin to try to do that. Our goal should be to change the policy of the Kremlin, not the regime. But as an analytical judgment, it's just very difficult for me to see how you get back to anything that looks like normalcy with Russia while Mr. Putin is there. You need a new leader, but you're also going to have to have a Kremlin leadership that changes policies in a way that shows that Russia is, in fact, prepared to live with its neighbors and is abandoning the kinds of military action that we're seeing in Kremlin today. So let me say again, I don't think, I can't tell you how this war is going to end beyond saying that there will be a Ukraine, but I do think that some of the ramifications I've just described for Ukraine, for Russia, for Europe, and the U.S.-Russia relationship are going to be with us for many, many years. So at that point, let me stop, and I'd be happy to take questions. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Um, uh, very uh, sobering. I think a lot of the talks we tend to have here nowadays are sobering, but then that's the situation of the world. Uh, while we're collecting uh, uh, questions from our members and guests, I usually take the advantage of being the moderator to ask the first one. Um, you, uh, early on in your speech, you mentioned the Budapest Memorandum yeah. as Russia giving commitments to Ukraine, but there were four parties to that right. agreement. The US and the UK were also parties. Do you think we did enough, yeah, both in, in uh, 2013 yeah. and now, to yeah. meet the commitments under yeah. that agreement? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the Buddhist Memorandum of Security Assurances, uh, Russia, the United States, and Britain committed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, its territorial, independent, territorial integrity, its independence, and committed not to use force or threaten to use force against Ukraine. Now, the, it was the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances not security guarantees. Uh, and I, I negotiated this part. That word difference was very important to us. As we told the Ukrainians, guarantees to American diplomatic ears means you have the same kind of commitment that NATO countries have. And what we told the Ukrainians back in 1993 and 1994 when we were negotiating the memorandum is, we're telling you now if the Russians violate this, we're not sending the 82nd Airborne. American troops are not coming to fight for you. And we said, but we will do things. There will be an American response. The United States will take interest. Now, there was a failure, both a failure in Washington, but also a failure in Kiev, is back in 1993 and 1994, we didn't foresee what the Russians did in 2014 or 2022. Had the Ukrainians really seen that possibility, my guess is we never would have been able to negotiate the removal of those nuclear weapons. 
But I think looking back on what the United States has done now, I mean, in this year, tens of billions of dollars of military equipment for Ukraine, leading the effort to politically isolate Russia, leading the effort to sanctions. I, the United States is doing the sorts of things that I think had the Ukrainians asked us, what specifically will you do? These are the sorts of things we're in mind. So I believe we have lived up to the spirit uh, uh, as well as the letter of that uh, memorandum. Thank you. Um, there's several questions here already and I haven't been able to sort through all of them, but um, of the same, this character, Western support is critical to Ukraine. How long will it last? And what do you think might cause it to, to stop? The yeah. current solidarity of the West. Yeah, I, I, I worry about a couple of things, although I have to tell you, um, I am more confident now about the Western ability to maintain support for Ukraine than I would have been, say, four or five months ago. One is watching Europe. A lot of nervousness four or five months ago. Could Europe sort of sustain their support, particularly if, as has now happened, the Russians have cut off energy? And in fact, Europe seems to be pretty rock solid on support. And the Europeans seem to have come up with ways to manage the energy uh, troubles. They're going to have a difficult winter. But there was a story I saw out of Germany that said that 75% of German companies that are, use gas, natural gas, have figured out ways to reduce their consumption of gas while still maintaining the same level of output. And there seems to be greater confidence in Europe that they can get through this winter and that they're not going to miss the Russian energy on which they used to import probably 40% of their gas came from Russia. Uh, so I'm confident. I'm a little bit nervous on the American side. Uh, I, I'm worried about, I really can't say this without getting political, but you have had uh, some members of the, uh, on the Republican side in Congress who have questioned American support for Ukraine. I don't think that that is the general view of the Republican Party. And I look at the last 30 years, and I would say that American support for Ukraine has been usually bipartisan, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, but I do worry about some elements of the Republican Party who seem to be questioning that, and we'll have to see, and hopefully they will not be a dominant influence within the Republican Party uh, next year. There are also a number of questions here that are, are similar to this one. Um, how long um, do you think do you think Putin will survive this war? I mean, is he strong enough in Russia that yeah. um, I've re read recently in the press that um, people are now speculating that no Russian leader who lost a war has ever survived yeah. the, politically? What's your view? Yeah, I I, I think if I were Vladimir Putin losing this war, I would not see as a career enhancing. <laughs> but but having said that, though, I, I think we have to also look at I mean. Putin has, in a very strategic way over the last 20 years, has built up a system you know, where, again, that power vertical, where the Kremlin controls most major elements of power. Uh, he controls the security services. Um, and they also control the uh, Russian information space. Uh, so you know, maybe at the end of the day, there's a negotiation. And you know, could they spin whatever he gets as, well, you know, we've got something. So I, I don't totally exclude that Putin might be able to lose this war and still remain in power, although my guess is probably not. And then the follow-up is kind of, is there any way to pop the Kremlin bubble echo chamber? That is, to, to change the, the people around Putin, yeah. the, the views of people around yeah. Putin? Yeah. I, I think 
It's interesting for the autocratic system that Russia is today, in my view, they do a lot of polling. They pay attention to public sentiment. And, and that seems to me that be, might be one thing that might cause the Kremlin to reevaluate its policy, is if they get a real sense that Russian mass opinion, public opinion, is turning against this war as a result of the sanctions, as a result of the casualties and such. And if that happens, you know, does that have an impact where the Kremlin decides to reassess? I also do under within the Russian elite, whether the question, including the inner circle. Uh, there have to be, I believe, people in the inner circle who are thinking this really is turning out to be a disaster. Uh, how can we get out of it? Now, if you are in that inner circle and then you are thinking maybe it's time we have a new leader, uh, you can't do it by yourself. You need somebody else, or maybe a group of people. The most consequential question you may ever ask in your life, though, is asking somebody, do you think it's time for Putin to go? <laughs> you know, the, uh, so, yeah, I, I, again, I look at both the public opinion in Russia, but also the possibility of the inner circle turning against them. Uh, those are small probabilities, but in both cases, they're not zero. Um, did previous U, uh, U.S. actions and administration contribute to the Ukrainian problem? Yeah, I mean, yeah. is this, we all know the politics in the U.S., yeah, but yeah. is that part of what's happened? I, I think it's hard to say. I, I mean, I, I guess in retrospect, the question I would have asked is, maybe back in 2014, had there been a stronger American and Western response? And, and, and I'm not talking about military actions, but uh, a strong response, for example, in terms of applying some of the economic sanctions that we're now applying. Had we done that, might that have sent the signal to the Russians that there really would be the kind of Western response that I don't believe Moscow expected when they made the decision to launch the invasion in February. But I'm not sure in the end, you know, hat, would that have actually deterred Putin? It's, 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 it's hard to read the guy's mind. For sure. And what about the role of President Zelensky? Uh, has his leadership played a major part of this, or would Ukraine have reacted like they did if, if he wasn't there? Yeah, Zelensky has been a, an interesting character. I mean, just, just a little bit of background. Uh, this guy, when he ran for president in 2019, uh, was a television actor. He played in a, in a TV series called um, uh, Servant of the People, the premise of the show was that Zelensky, as the, as the star of the show, he was a Ukrainian high school teacher. And one day he goes on a rant against corruption and one of his students, you know, be careful about those iPhones, uh, records this, puts it on the internet, it goes viral, and he is elected president of Ukraine. So the whole premise is what does this common man do as president of Ukraine? And it's, it, it, it's, it's a really funny, it's on Netflix, I would uh, strongly... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's just hilarious at times. Uh, but he certainly didn't intend to be president during the war. Uh, and there were, I think, real questions. I, I can remember talking to people back in January when we looked at the crisis. And at that time in January, I mean, by early January, I, I was persuaded the Russians were going to launch a major invasion. Uh, and it was the combination of what the U.S. intelligence community was saying publicly. It was a combination of the large military buildup and what just the Russians were saying. Um, and there were real questions. How is Zelensky going to respond? And I think he surprised everybody and it's really respond like somebody like Churchill. And I think you epitomize that in, 
within, I think, the first couple days of the war, it's, it reports are that both the U.S. and the Russians, I'm sorry, the U.S. and the British offered uh, ways to basically get Zelensky out of Kyiv. So he could set up either a government in western Ukraine or a government in exile somewhere outside of Ukraine. And his responses were reportedly, I don't need a ride on a helicopter, I need ammunition. Uh, and, you, I mean, you see him going out, it, you know, he, he visits the front lines. You know, I, I mean, sometimes I see him doing this and I kind of worry that he's exposing himself a little bit too much. But there was a, also this one picture that sort of captured it was on about the fifth day of the war. Uh, Putin is meeting, again, with his top general and his minister of defense in the Kremlin. You know, they're separated by 30 feet along this table. And the picture of Zelensky's out having tea with six or seven soldiers at one of the checkpoints that are set up to defend Kyiv. And that, that, those two pictures, to my mind, just capture a lot of the difference that uh, this war is about. Well, I'm just, we've got a, a billion <laughs> questions left up here, but let me just uh, um, ask a couple more. We're starting to run over our time. Um, someone wants to revisit scenario number one, where the Russians win. Yeah. Uh, what's the likelihood, the, uh, what is the effect on the outcome if uh, Belarus, Lukashenko, takes a stronger role in assisting Putin? Yeah, my guess is Lukashenko does not want to get involved in this war. I, the Belarusian army does not want to get involved in this war. And my guess is that Belarusian military commanders might not have full confidence in their troops if they got that order. So I think Lukashenko certainly has sided with Putin. I mean, he has his own domestic political issues, and the Russians were very supportive of him, and I think he feels he has to pay Putin back. But I think he's really tried to avoid uh, getting dragged into that in a direct way by use of the Belarusian army. So my, 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 my bet would be is that they will find a way to stay out of this. Well, Steve, I want to thank you, and I apologize to everyone whose question we didn't get to, but we could have kept Steve here the rest of the day. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Stephen Pfeiffer. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kumaladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.